You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. If you've got a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be in the verses that Ina just read for us. Uh, as you're turning there, if you're new, welcome to Citizens Church. My name is Jamin. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, we are thrilled that you chose to uh, worship with us. If you're watching online, uh, maybe you're doing that for the first time, or maybe you've been doing that for a long time. Thank you for uh, joining us, and then to all the dads, uh, happy Father's Day this morning. Uh, this summer, we're on break from our wisdom series. We had been in a series on wisdom for about four months that started in January. Uh, we're taking a break from that, and over the summer, uh, we are looking at our church's core beliefs. And by our churches, I really mean the churches. These are uh, not the beliefs that separate Orthodox churches from Orthodox churches, but these are the beliefs that really make Christianity Christianity, that uh, if you believe these things, uh, it's the mark of what it means to be a part of the family of God. There's a host of really important things that Christians can disagree on and still be a part of the big family that bears the name of Jesus, but these are not those. These are the, uh, the core beliefs. These beliefs are like the foundation of a home if they're missing then the structure just crumbles. It, it can't stand. And so uh, to give you an example, last week we talked about the doctrine of God <clears throat> and asked the question, who is God? And said that he's a, a triune God of love. That's who the Christian God is. Uh, he is one God eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God who know and love one another. And we condense that down into two words. God is Trinity and God is love. This morning, we're going to talk about the doctrine of revelation. Uh, not the book of Revelation, the doctrine of Revelation, basically that we believe as Christians that God has revealed himself, uh, God is knowable, and he has made himself known specifically through his word. So there's just a fact of life, a, a fact of relationships that we can lean into to maybe understand this. The big idea is this, that, that words reveal. Um, we know one another through our communication, and we cannot truly know each other without talking to each other, without communicating in some way with one another, right? Uh, the people that you are closest to, if you think about the relationships that you would say, that's, that's my best friend, or that's the, the person that I'm closest to in this world, right? You are close to them because most likely you've spent most time with them in honest conversation than with anyone else. And had you not spoken to one another, there are things that would not be revealed to one another about each other, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't know each other. Like if someone says, hey, I'd love to get together and get to know you, what do they mean? They mean let's get together and have a conversation, right? They don't mean, hey, can we get together for an hour of speechless eye contact, right? That would be really weird. Um, they mean let's get together and let's talk with one another. I've got a friend who told me the other day that uh, their teenage child, they were talking about their teenage child, and they said, I've had a hard time getting this child to talk to me lately. And why is that a problem? Well, because this parent wants to know what's going on in the life of their child. They love their child. They want to know everything about their child. And, and, and when their mouth is closed, parts of their life is closed, right? Parts of their life are closed. And so words reveal, speech reveals. And when we talk about revelation as it relates to God, Theologians will talk about two kinds of revelation. There's general revelation, then there's specific revelation. General revelation are the things that we can know about God based on creation. 
So Psalm 8 will say, when I consider the heavens, when I look at the stars, I see what your fingers have set in place. There are things that we can know about God just generally by the fact that we live in the world he created. Uh, Romans 1 says that there are invisible attributes of God that are actually evident simply by looking around at creation, that there's a way that God has generally revealed himself. But here's what's true. If that's the only way that God had revealed himself, there would be so much about God that we don't know. There would be so much that we'd Uh, be left to assume. If God had created and then uh, closed his mouth, if you will, there there would be parts of God that would be close to us, Uh, parts of God that we simply just would not know about him. We wouldn't know him like we do uh, now as Christians. God has spoken. That's what we believe. As Christians, we believe the Bible, what I have in my hands and hopefully what you have in your hands, on your phone or in your lap or something like that, we believe this to be God's Word that God, words reveal, and God has given us His Word to reveal to us who He is and what He's like. At Citizens, one of our values is the Word of God, and how we define that is it's knowing the true story of who God is and who we are. And so this morning, I just want to spend all of our time talking about the Bible, what we believe about the Bible. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 mainly. It's a classic passage about the Bible. It's a precious passage about the Bible. And my aim this morning is simply to answer two questions. What is the Bible and what does it mean to us? What is the Bible and maybe even what should it mean to us? Or how do we know if it means to us what God intends for it to mean to us? Um, So the first question is, what is the Bible? Bear with me. The next 10 minutes or so may feel a bit classroom for some, Um, But it's really, really important to get this right. So we need to learn about this. God's Word needs to teach us about this. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. It says this, all Scripture. Okay, let's pause just a second. Um, This is Paul writing to Timothy. And by all Scripture, he means the Old Testament. Uh, He's writing the New Testament, so he doesn't have the New Testament in mind. He's not thinking of the 27 books that make up the New Testament. That would come later. But... We, as a church, 2,000 years after this letter was written, are studying this letter in the Bible that includes some of the same books, all of the same books that Paul told Timothy are Scripture. So by all Scripture, we take that to mean all of the Bible, including the part of the Bible that Paul's reading right now. This verse is inclusive of both Old and New Testament. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's one word. That phrase is one word in Greek. We'll come back to that and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is the Bible? Let me offer a run-on sentence that we'll unpack together. The Bible is 66 books written by humans, inspired by God, that tell the true story that's all about Jesus. The Bible is 66 books written by humans, inspired by God. It tells one true story And that story is all about Jesus. 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It starts with Genesis. It ends with Revelation. The Bible is a book of books is what it is, all collected together by the people of God, canonized by the people of God. If you want to know how these books came to be fit together, if you want to know more about the Old Testament canon or the New Testament canon, ultimately we believe that God put these books together because this is the, what he wanted to reveal him. This is the collection of books that best reveal who God is to us. But if you want to go deeper into how that came to be and what we believe about that, you can go to the Bible Project. All of their stuff on this is so helpful. Just go to BibleProject.com, go to the search bar, 
type in what is the Bible and just watch all the videos and listen to all the podcasts. It will, uh, it's so helpful. It's fascinating. It will increase your understanding of and appreciation for God's word. Uh, it's 200 degrees outside. So it's a perfect time to just stay inside and learn more about the Bible. Okay. Do that this afternoon. Happy Father's Day. 66 books. It's a book of books. It's written by humans, inspired by God. We need to take some time here. The phrase breathed out by God in verse 16, it's one word in Greek, theonoustos, which is a combination of two words, theos, meaning God, and pneuma, which is spirit. So literally it means the Bible, God's word, is God-spirited. God's spirit at work through humans revealing God. That's how we got these books. There are two ways to err around the nature of the Bible. Some downplay God's involvement and say the Bible is just a human book. Others downplay human involvement and don't honor the reality that the Bible has marks of humanity all over it. It doesn't take away from its sacredness, doesn't take away from its inerrancy, but it has marks of humanity. Like the book we're in right now, it's named after a young Christian pastor who it was written to, Timothy. And it was written by a guy in prison in the Roman Empire just a few years before he's going to be killed by the Roman Empire. And all of that matters for understanding this book and what it's saying and what it reveals about God. Every book of the Bible has a co-author. It's God and whoever penned the words. So who wrote the first five books of the Bible? God and Moses and probably some other people. Who wrote the book of Matthew? God and? Yeah, that's a softball. It's Matthew. <laughs> it literally has his name. Uh, who wrote the book that we're in? God and Paul. It's written by humans, and it's inspired by God. This is really important. We don't believe the Bible just floated down from heaven on golden paper carried by angel wings or something like that. That would be amazing, but that's not what happened. Theonoustos. It's God-spirited. God's spirit at work through humanity to write his word. And you see that reflected in the Bible. The Bible consists of all different kinds of genres. 44% of the Bible is narrative. The second largest chunk of the Bible is poetry. The book we're in now is a genre called discourse. It's just communication. It's a letter. Had Paul written it now, it would have been like a long email to Timothy. He's just communicating to him. Those genres are rooted in, in a bunch of different cultures. The Bible is written in 10 different civilizations, on three different continents, in three different languages. The Bible is written by over 40 people, all different backgrounds and different occupations. There's shepherds and kings and fishermen and tax collectors and white collar and blue collar and people with a whole lot of money and people with a... a little bit of money and people with a lot of societal influence and people with zero societal influence. And what God does is God takes those 40 plus authors, 10 different civilizations, three different continents, three different languages, and brings all that together in 66 books. And this is how he speaks. This is how he reveals himself to us. He does not stay silent. He opens his mouth. He inspires and divinely orchestrates all of this so that we would know him, so that we would know him. And even that, even that reveals something that's just so special about God. The idea of God's spirit at Theonoustos, God revealing himself by his spirit through humans, that's how God delights to work in his world. It has been that way from the very beginning. God delights in working through humanity to bless humanity. That's God's mode of operation. On the very first pages of the Bible, he tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. The plan was to create a creation that needed co-creators by way of humans that God would work through humanity to bless humanity and to cultivate the world. And that's what the Bible is. 
The Bible is just another example of God delighting to work through humanity to bless humanity. 66 books written by humans, inspired by God. And listen, if we know where to look, there's encouragement there. There's deep encouragement there. Uh, Those 40-plus people that God used, they had a couple things in common. You know one thing they all had in common? They were all deeply broken people, imperfect, sinful humans in need of grace. The people who co-authored God's divine, inerrant revelation of himself, they doubted God. They sinned against God. They struggled with anger and they struggled with lust, and they struggled with greed, and they struggled with envy. Some authors of the Bible were guilty of murder. Some authors of the Bible were guilty of prejudice. All authors of the Bible, to some degree, were guilty of idolatry, and they pinned the very words of God that perfectly and inerrantly reveal God. Be encouraged. Uh, A lie that I sometimes believe, and maybe you do too, uh, is that I can't read my Bible because I'm too broken. Uh, I'm too sinful. Or like, I can't read my Bible because I don't read my Bible consistently enough, so whenever I go to read my Bible, I just kind of feel like a fraud. And here's what's true. Whatever book you pick to read at any given time in the Bible, it was written by a broken person used by God. A broken person used by God. And if, I wonder if we could consider, if their sin by God's grace didn't disqualify them from writing the Bible, maybe our sin by God's grace, doesn't disqualify us from reading it. And maybe we can lean in to the same grace they did and believe that God wants to speak to us as a broken person through the writing of divinely inspired broken people. God wants you to know Him. Words reveal. God has revealed Himself, and He wants all to come and to know Him in the pages of His Word. Sixty-six books written by humans inspired by God, and they tell one story that's all about Jesus. I need to name, just to make sure that we're hearing clearly what God's Word is, I need to name a few things the Bible is not about, that maybe with where we live and and, uh, just our part of the world could easily distort our view or understanding or expectations of the Bible. The Bible is not about getting to heaven when you die. That's not what it's about. I was born in the late 80s into a pastor's home. It means my childhood was marked by a few things. Uh, It means uh, I I grew up in a godly, God-fearing, gospel-centered home. My mom and dad did the best they could by God's grace to raise us in grace and truth, and I'm grateful for that. I know that's not every pastor's kid's story, but that's my story. Uh, Being a pastor's kid meant I was at church all the time, all the time I was at church. Uh, It meant I sometimes was used in illustrations uh, as sermons, which I've passed on. Um, It also means I had a drawer full of cheesy Christian t-shirts. Full. Let me tell you the two worst ones. The worst one, the number one worst one, and I think we've talked about this before, it was a shirt that at the top in big letters it said, the Lord's gym. Then there was a picture right in the middle of a super swole Jesus (laughs) doing push-ups with the cross on his back. And underneath it, it said, no pain, no gain. It's so terrible. Like, Jesus isn't Thor, right? He's not like a white bodybuilder. He's a Middle Eastern Jewish man who truly didn't crush the cross like a workout. He allowed himself to be crushed by it, that he would then crush sin and death in his resurrection. That shirt 
completely botches the whole point of the cross. Anyway, and back then I loved it. I, I wore it all the time. I was so proud. Um, the second worst one was a shirt that just said B-I-B-L-E in big letters, Bible. And then underneath it, it was an acronym. It said Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. And the idea is that's what the Bible is. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. And that kind of idea was, I want to be careful, that kind of idea was made popular by uh, some books that came out in the mid-90s uh, called Left Behind. And there's a Christian subculture that kind of spawned out of that that had this inflated view of the end times and had this embellished understanding of the rapture. And so it made claims about the Bible like this. It's just basic instructions before leaving earth. Like, here are some life tips, some good things to know before your soul gets extracted into heaven, right? And the biggest problem with that shirt about the Bible is the Bible. That's not what the Bible's about. We beat this drum all the time. Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, the movement of the Bible is not earth to heaven. The movement of the Bible is heaven to earth. The Bible is about God, not about getting out of here. The Bible is about God. It's about God's presence. It's about heaven and earth reunited. It's not about getting to heaven. It's about God and God getting back to earth like he was in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible's also not an encyclopedia of topics. Like when, when I want God's thoughts on money, I try to find the money verses, right? Like some sort of systematized encyclopedia of, of things that God cares about, right? If I want God's thoughts on marriage, I look at the marriage verses. If I'm trying to decide about whether to take a new job or not, I want to know what the Bible has to say about decision-making. Now, I hope you care what the Bible says about all those kinds of things, but that's not the primary way we approach the Bible. That's not primarily what the Bible is about. Those things have to be understood rightly in the larger message of the Bible. It's not primarily a book that just offers issue-specific advice. The Bible is also not a collection of moral stories to make us better people. Like, I take the story of David and Goliath to learn bravery, and that makes me a brave person. Or I take the story of Daniel in the lion's den, and that makes me a praying person. Or I take the story of Esther in front of the king, and that makes me a bold person. Or I take the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and that makes me a generous person. Or I take the story of Noah in the ark, and that makes me love animals or something like that, right? Now, there's much to learn by way of good moral examples in the Bible. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 will tell us this. It points to these characters in the Bible, and, and it, it encourages us to model their character, and it calls them a cloud of witnesses. But it's not what the Bible is primarily about. It's not like a choose-your-own-moral-lesson book. The Bible is one story that's all about Jesus. That's what the Bible's about. All 66 books together pointing to Jesus, telling the true story in which Jesus is the hero. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and he says this in Luke chapter 24. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says the law and the prophets and the Psalms, that's a way of talking about the entire Old Testament. And what he says is all of the Old Testament was pointing to me in that passage. 
we already know that all the New Testament is about Jesus. And so according to Jesus, all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. All of the New Testament is about Jesus. The Bible covers the beginning of the world to the new heavens and the new earth, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. All of it is pointing to, dependent on, and summed up in Jesus. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the Bible is the double revelation of Jesus. Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God wrapped in flesh. The Bible is the written revelation of God, and the written revelation is all about the wrapped in flesh revelation. It's why it's such a big deal when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's all about Jesus. The Bible is one story. It has one plot and has one hero, and that hero is Jesus, the king. Matt Smethurst, he has a book on how to read the Bible, and he ties all that we've said together. He says it's 66 books of various genres, 40-plus authors, a variety of backgrounds, 1,500-plus years, 10 civilizations, three continents, three languages, one unified story of redemption, one ultimate plan, one ultimate plot, one ultimate champion, and one ultimate king. It's Jesus. As one theologian summarized the message of the Bible, the story of the Bible in one sentence, he said it's this, God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it. It's all about Him. It all points to Him. What's the Bible, friends? Words reveal the Bible is God's written revelation of Himself. It's 66 books written by humans, inspired by God, tells one story that's all about Jesus. What should that mean for us? Like, how would I know if I believe that? What would I be looking for in my life? Well, this passage tells us. Look with me again at 16 and 17. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Teaching, reproof and correction, training in righteousness, that we might be complete, equipped to do good. So let's lean into something. We're in Plano, Texas. There's a church on every corner. Most of the room are likely Christian. It's the third Sunday in June, and you're at church in the middle of summer. You, chose to, you could have been at the lake. You could have been at the pool. But in the middle of summer, you're at church. It means you're, you're super committed to this, and I'm grateful for that. And I've basically been saying for 21 minutes and 48 seconds that the Bible is the Word of God. It's God's revelation of Himself. There's probably, and I know a lot of you, there's probably just a collective nod that's happening. Like, maybe you didn't know that the Bible was written by 40-plus authors, and you're like, that's neat. But everything else has been old news, in a sense. Nothing else has been, like, super revelatory. And there's a danger in that. There really is. And it's a danger we come across often in a time like this that I always want to fight against. And the danger is that we stop at right thinking and don't go beyond right thinking and be held accountable for right response. Not only do I nod and say that's the Word of God, but does my life reveal, do my actions reveal, do my Monday through Saturday reveal that this is God's very revelation of Himself to me, and you can see that coming out in my actions and how I spend my time. So let's do this. I just want to turn the second half of this verse into three diagnostic questions that we can ask. These are three questions that we we should consider that we should ask ourselves to know if the Bible means to us what it should mean to us. So one word we see here is teaching. So let's just turn that into a diagnostic question. Does the Bible teach you, friend? If we were to to go deeper than that, is the Bible your first and final authority on everything that matters most in life? I was listening to an NBA podcast the other day. 
Um, it was a, I, since the Mavs had their run, I've just doubled down on the Mavs. I'm listening to off-season podcasts. That's how bad it's gotten. So um, I was listening to an NBA podcast the other day, and it was a couple of NBA players who uh, played for the same college and played for the same coach. And they said this. They said, you know who in the NBA has played for this coach because when they talk about basketball, they sound like him. They use his words. They use his phrases. Uh, game day, he had this phrase where he would look at him and he would say, the hay is in the barn, which means we've done all that we can do. Now all we just have to go out and play. And they said, in NBA locker rooms, sometimes you'll hear guys say that phrase. They'll, they'll sound like him. They'll repeat his phrases. They use his words. His teaching about basketball has so influenced these players that they can't talk about basketball without using his words. Do you have that kind of relationship with the Bible? Do you have that kind of relationship with God's Word? It has so taught you that you can't talk about life without sounding like God, without sounding like His Word. No matter what you're talking about, when you open your mouth to talk about the most important things, Scripture comes out of your mouth, or at least things that sound like Scripture come out of your mouth. Like you can't talk about marriage without using God's Word to describe marriage. And so for me as a husband, I say things like, I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. You can't talk about money without revealing that you've been taught by God on how to view money and its limits. Store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, Matthew 6. When you talk about conflict and you talk about people who've hurt you, you sound like a peacemaker because blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God, Matthew 5. When you talk about yourself, when you talk about you, you have an understanding of your God-given dignity. God made me in His image. God knit me together in my mother's womb, Genesis 1, Psalm 139. When you talk about yourself, you have a humble understanding of your own depravity, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, it's Romans 3. When you talk about God, you talk about God in ways that are consistent with how He's revealed Himself. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love is our God, Exodus 34. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, Revelation 4. When you talk about life, you tell the true story that's all about Jesus. When you talk about your life and your hopes and your dreams and your purpose, you tell the creation, fall, redemption, new creation story because you believe and I believe that that's the true story that we live in. We don't live in the make something of yourself story. We don't live in the us versus them story. We don't live in the find happiness in yourself story. We live in the God made it, we broke it, Jesus fixes it story. So when we talk about life, we speak of that world, a world that God made good, a world that God's rescuing. When we talk about our hope in life, we talk about the moment all the world is waiting for in Philippians 2, when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Has God's word so taught you that it comes out of you, that you sound like God and you live in accordance with his word. You sound like Jesus and you live in accordance with his word. If not, friend, just a simple question, if I can press. Who do you sound like? Who's shaping you? Who are you listening to? If you remember from our Sermon on the Mount series, whoever has your ear controls your life. Does God have your ear? Is his word teaching you? Do you think and speak about God and life and marriage and sex and hopes 
and emotions and conflict and death and sin and food and justice and family? Do you sound like God and His Word when you talk about those things? Has God taught you? Has God shaped your view of those things? And if not, are you putting in the time to get in God's Word to learn from Him, to hear from Him? We need Him to teach us. We need His voice. Uh, two other words we see in here are reproof and correction. So if we turn that into a question, a diagnostic question would be this one. It's the most uncomfortable. Is the Bible confronting you? Your life and my life should be filled with places where the Bible has done surgery on us, where the Bible has exposed things in us that are hurting us and hurting others, and, and like a doctor with a scalpel, it's gone in to do surgery. And that correction is uncomfortable. Now, I need to say this. The Bible wounds to heal. The Bible never wounds to harm. And so there are some people that have and will continue to use the Bible as a weapon of control, and they use the Bible to harm, not to heal. Do you remember the stubborn from our Proverbs series? Proverbs 26, 9, like a thorn that goes into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Fools weaponize truth. Fools use the Bible to hurt people. A thorn in the hand of a drunk guy, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't teach anything. His hand bleeds, and it just hurts. And that's how some people use the Bible, so ready to correct others. They hear words like correction and reproof, and they automatically think of all the people in their life that need to be confronted. They have no vision for how the Bible can heal, no vision for how the Bible can make whole. They only have a vision for how they can use the Bible to, at best, win an argument, and at worst, condemn, control, and dehumanize. You know how to fight against becoming that kind of person? You know how to fight against having that kind of relationship with the Bible? by believing the person who most needs to be confronted by God's Word is me. Approaching the Bible with a humble posture that expects to be confronted, that expects God's Word to operate on me, to be wounded in a way that heals. Tim Keller says this, if you believe in a God that never disagrees with you, you worship yourself. And so we should expect that we open God's Word to be confronted, that God disagrees with things about us. Maybe we can tease it out like this. When is the last time God's word confronted and convicted you? And what happened? Did you dismiss? Did you ignore? Did you, oh, I can't mean that. One of the most recent times for me was in Ecclesiastes, truly. We were in the book for three weeks in May, and, and for a few weeks we looked at this beautiful truth according to God's wisdom voice that life is a gift. And that confronted me. That convicted me. I don't live like that. I don't think like that. That confronted me because I, I don't treat life like a gift. Irritation is so much easier for me than gratitude. And you know what's happened since we did those few weeks on life as a gift? Since I was confronted by that truth in God's word and tried to get you to share in on that with me, uh, I have continued to live like life is a problem to solve. And I've continued to live like life is a competition to win. And I've continued to live like life is a right that I've earned. Those ways of living are deeply embedded in the brokenness of my heart. And so what I've done or tried to do is just keep praying our prayer. God, life is a gift. You are the giver. Thank you. I set an alarm on my phone to remind me of that. I put the prayer up on the wall of our house. And I'm trying to honor the confrontation. 
And I'm just praying by God's grace he helps me stumble forward, that his word would continue to operate on the sick parts of my heart. I need that confrontation from God's word. And when it comes, I don't need to brush past it. I need to take it seriously. I need to give the space for it to do the work it needs to do on me. I need the confrontation. I need the surgery. So do you. Is the Bible confronting you? And maybe it's confronting you in ways that you don't expect. Maybe you believe the Bible's confrontation to always come in a way that's not comforting. But maybe the, the confrontation we need is, is being confronted that we don't believe that we're as loved as we are. Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. That will confront shame and doubt and feelings of distance between you and God. And it'll say, no, neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor depth. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And if you doubt that, let God's word lovingly confront that and comfort you in that. The Bible teaches us. The Bible confronts us. The last one is the Bible making you whole. It says, for training in righteousness that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, the word training is a discipline word. It's like an athlete word. It's moment-by-moment moment guidance. Uh, righteousness is not just doing the right thing. Righteousness is being made whole. And it's the idea that all of our life is brought in accordance with God and His will. It means that every moment of my life, I want God's Word to shape that moment to bring about wholeness and completion in my life. In verse 17, it says this, it makes us complete. I wanted to phrase this question, does the Bible complete you? but that sounded way too Jerry Maguire. So does the Bible make you whole? Is it making you whole? Is it bringing wholeness to every moment of life? Is it, is it, is it training you in righteousness in every moment? Like when you're at the grocery store, the checkout person working, scanning your groceries, they bear God's image. They're an image bearer of God. They're worthy of dignity. And the Bible would train us in righteousness to know that they are worthy of love and worthy of respect and so our interaction with them should be shaped accordingly. And that brings a wholeness. That moves us towards wholeness in ordinary moments. Think about today. It's Father's Day. On Father's Day, how might we see this day through the lens of God's Word? Like, what would God's Word say to us fathers? The overwhelming majority of dads I know uh, want to be a good dad. They fear failing their children, and they desire to love them and to do a good job. And God's Word reminds us, tells us clearly how to do that, how to do our part in that at least. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Dads, be gentle with your kids. Don't stir up anger in them. Don't act in ways that provoke them. Colossians says don't exasperate them. Don't put so much pressure on them that it comes out of them as anger. Be a gentle presence with your children, God's Word says. Uh, don't be heavy-handed and crush them. Don't be hands-off and neglect them. Be open-handed, present with them. Teach them to know and follow Jesus and bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. As God trains us in righteousness and in wholeness, wholeness we are to train our children's in righteousness and whole children in righteousness and wholeness. There's lots of things we could do to tease this out, but with where we are this morning, one of the things that means, dads, is to teach your kids God's word to speak the words of God to them. I'm just convinced that when our children hear the words of our heavenly father through their earthly father, it's special. It does something. So when your kids fight, tell them Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. When your kids are worried, tell them Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything, by prayer and thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When they wonder what life is all about, tell them Colossians 1.16, all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus. When they're hurting and they don't understand the pain in the world, 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so God will bring with him those who have died in him. Dads, when your daughter comes home from school and tells you that some boy told her that God told him that they're supposed to date, tell your daughter Ephesians 5, 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. (laughs) For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. When you're with your family and you're on vacation and you see the beauty of creation, just take a moment and tell them Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the work of God's fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? What are we that you care for us? Dads, God wants to train you as a father to make you whole as a father, and his words say that we're to be a gentle presence with our children, training them to know and follow Jesus by pointing them to his word. On Father's Day, God's word would shape us, would shape this day. The greatest responsibility we have to our children that we can be reminded of on a day like this, God's word says, is to train them to know and love Jesus. Okay, well, on a day like today, what does his word say when I feel like I'm failing at that? Or on a day like today, what if my kids are out of the house and I'm filled with regret over ways I didn't do that? What if I was faithful in that and my kids still don't love the Lord? What if I want kids and I don't have them? What if I wanted a different kind of dad and I didn't get him? What if my dad is gone? What if he's passed away and I miss him? It's Father's Day. If we're after training in righteousness and we're after wholeness, what does God's Word say to those of us for whom today is painful? What might God's Word say to make us whole if today reminds us of broken places in our life? 1 Corinthians 1.3. It's a beautiful verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. All of us who follow Jesus on this Father's Day, we have a Father. His Word reveals Him. He is a Father of mercies. He is a God of all comfort. Do you feel right now like a Father of failure? You have a Father of mercies, and He will Father you in grace. Do you have a father of insults? Your dad said things to you you can't unhear. Well, you have a father of mercies who speaks a better, truer word over you, his child. Do you have a father of absence? He was never around and is still not around. You have a father of mercies. He sent his son that he might be with you forever. Do you long for children and don't have them? And today's another Father's Day without kids. Do you miss your dad because he passed away? And it's another Father's Day without him. Not only do you have a father of mercies, but you have a God of all comfort. Your father of mercies is the God of all comfort who is willing and able to comfort us in our suffering and in our affliction. He loves you. You are his child, and you can run to him for comfort. How do we know all this about God? The Bible tells us so. God's word reveals him to us that we might know him like this. And because it's God's word, because it reveals him to us, it teaches us, it confronts us, it makes us whole, it comforts us, all that we might grow to know and love the God who made himself known. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace.
Thank you for your kindness to us. In what your word tells us, your word reveals you to us, God. And what your word tells us is that when we pray, we pray to our Father in heaven who is altogether different and set apart and holy and mighty and righteous. But he's our Father. We have been welcomed into the family by our brother Jesus through his blood, his sacrifice on our behalf. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be Bible people. I pray that we here at Citizens Church would be the kinds of people that when we talk about life, we sound like you, God. We use your words. I pray that we would be people who have recent memories of your word confronting us and changing us. I pray that we would be people who walk into every day of our life, every moment of our life, asking, how would God's word train me in righteousness? How would God's word move me towards wholeness in this moment. Help us. We love you. We need you. Thank you, God, for the Bible. Thank you for the Bible, God. Thank you for your word. Amen.